Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hey, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And today I'm really um, I'm looking forward to talking to Dawson Church. Not only because he's got one of the most fantastic names I've ever come across. I mean, Dawson <laughs> Church. I mean, Dawson, what's this about? I mean, a man with two surnames. That's just really <laughs> hogging the limelight. But also um, to talk about um, a very interesting subject. Some of you will know about the subject, but I'm sure Dawson's going to shed fresh light upon it. So first of all, good afternoon. Russell, great to be here. Thank you. Pleasure. And uh, where in the world are you today? I am in Northern California, and that's where I spend a lot of time. I also spend about the third of the year in Hawaii, so I happen to be in California at the moment. So you'll recognize my background. (laughs) I could tell in a moment. You were right there. (laughs) No, dark and stormy England. It's just a beautiful Caribbean background of palm trees and waves. You've got you've got me distracted already. Now all you need to throw into the mix is cherry pie, and I'll be completely um, in, a, in a state. Well, tell us a little bit about tell us a bit about yourself and what it is that you do. What I do is I bring the lens of science to various existential and uh, both personal and and global questions. And so, for example, I I wrote a book recently called Bliss Brain. And what I was looking at is the mental states of meditators, especially people who've spent a lot of time meditating, like like Franciscan nuns, Tibetan monks, and what the research shows about their brain states, which reveals that they're extraordinarily happy. And they're happy at a level that, uh, Russell, you and I can hardly even comprehend because as we study things like the the gamma frequency of their brain waves or the parts of their brains that are active, we find that they're in these ecstatic states. So I wrote the book, This Brain, to look at the science behind meditation, but also see what works. And it then shows that certain practices of meditation are highly effective at inducing those states. Others are not very effective. So I, I just love science and I love bringing that lens to questions like, how do you get happy? How do you meditate well? How do you release, release stress? How do you deal with childhood trauma? And science has just fantastic, intriguing, and highly practical answers. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, um, I mean, are those people dramatically happy because of meditation, or are they just dramatically happy because they're cut off from 
the modern world. I mean, <laughs> yeah, go live in a monastery or a convent or go in the go live in the woods like a hermit. And yeah, yeah. why not? Why not be happy? So um, yeah, that's that's the chicken and egg question that was was present in early research. Is, is so we we measure them. And for example, they have really thick corpus callosums in their brain. And that's the part of the brain tissue that that connects the left and right hemispheres. So the question then was, well, are they that happy because their left and right brains have a lot of neural connections? Like Albert Einstein's corpus callosum was absolutely gigantic. And he had an otherwise unremarkable brain, but his corpus callosum, where the left and right hemispheres are chatting, was huge. And so the question is, do these people feel that good? Are they in these ecstatic states because they have a big corpus callosum? Or are these states triggering brain growth? And so the key figure in tackling that question in around 2005 was a Harvard psychologist called Sarah Lazar. And she did some really interesting chicken and egg studies like that to look at whether it was the fact that they had these brain structures, these brain anatomy producing these ecstatic states, or whether those states were producing the brain anatomy. And she gave definitive answers to that, which have been replicated now several times, showing that it's the states that produce the brain anatomy, and we can turn temporary states of well-being into long-term personality traits. So that's the states to traits progression, and people who meditate, especially those who meditate effectively, are able to increase neural mass in parts of the brain like the hippocampus, the memory and learning system. We increase, we see increases in, in, in neural tissue in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that hooks the executive centers into the emotional brain. And so you can literally downregulate all the irritations and, and, and distractions of everyday life and really focus on happiness, joy, and well-being. So those parts of the brain get bigger and stronger in these meditation adepts. And then the the other side of the coin is we look at people, for example, with major depressive disorder. And what we see is the opposite phenomenon is the ventromedial prefrontal cortex actually thins and begins to disintegrate. And what's left of it starts to signal the wrong way. So now the emotional brain that's miserable, that's worried, that's anxious, that's stressed, actually now starts to control the executive functions and people then say, oh, well, I am stressed because of, they invent reasons in their executive centers for their misery rather than controlling it with that same part of the brain. So we now know that these states actually produce measurable changes in brain anatomy. So it's a big, it's a big claim to move from um, changes in personality from meditation in a lifetime no, actually, much less time than that. I have just published a study that's been about five years in the making. It's in one of the top journals in in neuroscience. It's called Innovations in Clinical Neuroscience. And if you just Google my name and the journal title, you'll see the study published just a, a few weeks ago. And um, what we what we what we've been doing is we've been taking these 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 monks and nuns and these meditation adepts and reverse engineering what they do and how their brains get that way. And we've been finding that, again, this is why I love science, because the traditional model that they use takes 10,000 hours, and many of them have done over 40,000 hours of meditation in their lives. So it takes a very long time, and it does take going into the monastery. So how do you get there without vows of poverty, chastity, no obedience, and giving up all your worldly possessions, and, and you know, that wonderful glass of beer and that 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 lovely juicy steak and all those things and going going and being in the how, how do you get to those states as an ordinary human being in the western world 
And what we found is that there are certain things you can do that produce those brain changes quickly. So we have found that ordinary people who are non-meditators, if they do certain highly effective things, culled from that ancient tradition, if they do these highly effective things, in this randomized controlled trial I published in that top neuroscience journal, we did, it was randomized between people doing those things and people doing good things like mindfulness and mindful breathing. And those are the two groups. And we found that in the group doing those effective things for only one month, there were measurable functional changes in two parts of the brain. And so again, this is brain anatomy changing, and it wasn't taking 10,000 hours. In non-meditators, those same patterns were showing up in under a month, and they were only meditating 22 minutes a day. So we now know from that, and there is a lot of research around this now, that that people don't need to spend all that time. If they're using effective practices, they can get there really fast in under a month. One study uh, of Kriya Yoga showed meditation, showed that people had measurable brain changes doing meditation for only eight minutes a day. Now that I think is a really minimal dose. Our meditations are mostly 20, 25 minutes long. We think that's the, the that's gonna get you there faster. But in these extreme studies, they've shown that eight minutes a day is enough to, again, that's not extensive brain remodeling, but you see hints of that brain remodeling happening. It's, it's measurable under a high resolution MRI in on, only a month. Okay. What are the effective practices? That's that's quite an interesting idea. Well, again, this is where being a scientist is really useful because if I were, say, uh, a practitioner of some school of meditation with a meditation form that you know has come down from my teachers for 10,000 years, I'd be, I'd be telling you this, this is it. But with a lens of science, you just shine the light of that uh, filter on 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 these states and traits, and then you see what's effective. And there, in my book Bliss Brain, I, I I review the research, and we find that three things are highly effective. One is to meditate intensely, so you feel the good feelings in your body, and you do that when you're meditating. So we have people breathe in certain ways, we have people relax certain muscles, and when they do these things, they get into those those states. But you can now dial up your emotion. And this was not really understood very well in psychology for, for many, many, many decades, actually. But it now, neuro research is showing that you feel that positive feeling in your body, maybe in your chest, maybe in your forehead or your throat, and you just amplify that. So amplification is effective. A second uh, practice is doing it in a group. Group When they look at Tibetan monks who meditated in solitary settings versus those doing it in monasteries with other monks, there's more positive neuroplasticity in those people who are doing it in groups. So we know, for example, now that having a body physical experience, that dialing up your level of intensity, that doing it in a group is, is really powerful. And the final thing that makes a difference is compassion. Those people who are doing compassion meditation have greater positive neuroplasticity than those that are doing other kinds of meditation, following your thought meditation, releasing uh, negativity meditation. There's a lot of the thousands of styles of meditation. And I cover the key ones in my book, This Brain, but of all of them, if there is an element of feeling compassion, that a part of the brain called the insula lights up, and the insula handles pro-social emotions like gratitude and awe and joy. 
altruism and what we actually find in these um in these these people in these awakened states is it's the focus has been on the emotion and the the value of compassion because that's what buddhism calls it but what we're now seeing it as much more in neuroscience is a single positive meta emotion you just feel really really good and it's up to an academic to label it whether it's awe or gratitude or happiness or compassion it's just that 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 part of the brain is highly active those brain waves are extraordinarily uh large i mean the the, the amount of gamma present in the, in the brains of these monks can go up to 25 times that of an ordinary person so again they aren't just slightly happy they are literally in bliss yes and of course they're having no cortisol which is bringing them down or other sorts of normal right. life experiences so so yeah so, so i get that makes sense um so what is it about meditation in itself because um one of you know we we have we have sort of a an idea of what meditation is but maybe you should unpack it for us as an expert what what is this state or what is this process what does it do and how does it work well meditation is comes in many different forms and when you're reading meditation research you have to just be aware of, of what kind of meditation it is exactly. and also whether that's good for you and so there are forms of meditation based in physical stillness but there are also forms of meditation based in movement like uh my wife for example loves yoga and she gets this meditative mm -hmm. state when she does yoga uh, i personally don't really uh, enjoy yoga that much but i love qigong so there are qigong people who do or tai chi who do movement styles of meditation yeah. Uh, Buddhist walking meditation, again, very slow, deliberative walking can be uh, a form of meditation. If you, you know, for, for a teenage boy with tons of energy, sitting quietly for an hour is definitely not going to work. So you want to get that boy out there into nature and have him running and then feeling uh, with nature. So that's going to work for some people. Sacred reading uh, has been around for a long, long, long time that you actually sit there with a sacred text and read the, the words of Jesus or Buddha or Shankara or Baal Shem Tov, and you really immerse yourself in this, you know, Rumi, for example. I mean, it's, it's hard not to get happy when you when you read Rumi. I, I, I picked uh, reading Rumi as the control condition for a study I did that's being published soon in another big journal called Frontiers in Psychology. And I thought, well, you know, for the control group, we'll just have people read Rumi for, you know, for, for half an hour every day. And, and and nothing much will happen with their with their biology or their psychology. It's just a pretty in, innocuous. It's it's a neutral placebo control. Well, the people in the control group did very very well reading Rumi, and I was I was amazed. And the, the people in the experimental group doing really deep meditation did better. But still, we were quite surprised by how effective Rumi was. So uh, that the reading can bring you into the state of those masters. You aren't in the state of the master, but reading the works of Saint Teresa or Saint Francis or or, or Rumi or one of the other masters can s help you start to be in that that space. So physical posture. Just, just yeah. slipping in, just to ask questions the audience might have in their heads for a second. Um, you seem to be describing just a trance state here, because actually reading any good book will put you into that trance state. So you could be reading a, 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 um, a book of um, really great fiction. It doesn't have to be the work of a master, I'm suspecting, because is it the trance state which is making the difference or the messages that you're receiving from the, the context that's making the difference here? 
I think they both contribute because you want to get into that state. And in my books, I call that non-local mind. And we're aware of local mind. We function in the local reality. But there's amazing evidence of non-local reality and non-local mind and non-local consciousness. And so that in the mystical tradition is called non-duality or non-dual awareness, where you are one with the all that is. That's the classic Buddhist way of putting it. You move into oneness with the all that is. So it's what puts you into oneness with the all that is. And again, for some people, it's going to be the breath. Other people, it'll be time and nature. Others might do it by group meditation. Others might do it with a movement meditation. So what, what it puts you into that state of, of, of communion with the all that is, and that's where again we find these monks and nuns are really happy. We're also doing research now and seeing what happens to people's productivity when they go back to the real world. And this is just a recent set of studies. I have data already. I haven't published anything yet. But for three years now, we've been asking the question, well, it's nice to get out there into non-local mind and be one with the all that is, but what happens when you get back into your body and you're dealing with the diapers and the um, you're dealing with 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 the economy and you're dealing with a, a boss who isn't kind to you or you're in a bad marriage or you you can't pay the mortgage? What what happens then? And um, our this again this is based on the very first initial data analysis still unpublished, but we found that people have a twenty six percent highly statistically significant rise, 26% rise in productivity. So they're better at their marriages and they're better in their career and they're better at their work and they're better social citizens. And it's really remarkable to see people actually doing much better in the real world after they've had that transcendent state. But surely there's a, surely that's, if you just have a good rest, you can achieve maybe maybe not the same amount, but part of what you're doing here is resting your prefrontal cortex and controlling the sort of randomized thoughts ripping around your head. So there are other practices that allow you to do that rather than just meditation. And and so, for example, just reading a normal book would would get you that result as well, wouldn't it? Or is there something more significant in meditation? And no, meditation, meditation tr uh, activates certain parts of the brain. Okay. And uh, for example, we see a, a commonality among all the effective meditation styles is a deactivation of the default mode network. And that's really important because the default mode network is the network to which the brain defaults when you aren't doing a task. And it has two nodes. One is the mid prefrontal cortex over here and right between the, your eyebrows and the back, just behind the, your eyebrows. The other is in the back of your head and it's the posterior cingulate cortex. And so these are the two mo uh, main poles of the default mode network. And so when people are just resting, they're gonna definitely feel better. Uh, they're gonna, you know, gonna feel more, more relaxed. But what often happens is if the default mode network kicks in, then they begin to ruminate and 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 catastrophize. And so the default mode network is associated with thinking about the past, especially threats from the past and bad experiences of the past, and then problems that might occur in the future. So the default mode network is our brain's way, in, in terms of evolutionary biology, it's what our ancestors did by default when their brain wasn't occupied with the task, is they thought about the tiger that almost ate them yesterday, and the tiger that might eat them tomorrow. And that was a really useful thing. What modern research finds, though, is that now there are, no, there are no tigers leaping out of the woods at us, is we worry. And so we default not to the real tiger, but the, the paper tiger in our mind. We obsess, we worry about the stuff going wrong in our lives. And um, a famous study done by two Harvard psychologists showed that the, 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 the title was 
a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And they found that people often in, in, in times of leisure actually weren't all that happy. They were ruminating about things that were threats from the past, problems that might happen in the future. And they weren't all that happy. They weren't in the present moment, which is where you find happiness. So paradoxically, that study finding, you can just look this up on, online if you want to just type in that 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 string, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind, and you'll see this massive long-term study showing that uh, just doing nothing, often our brains, as they go to the default mode network, trigger suffering. Yeah. And so, I mean, is it, I mean, we've often heard about meditation described as sitting on the top of a hill chanting, you know, having your, your word from TM and such like, well, but at this fundamental level, meditation is just being at one with your own body, isn't it? It's being very aware of your body, being in your body. And there are, again, the disembodied meditations, but we really like to see people being in their bodies because certainly when you trigger your body in certain ways, like the, 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 the effect of meditations we teach, we have people breathe in a certain rhythm. And we know you have to, to breathe in that rhythm. You can't be taking short breaths. You need to be taking long, slow, deep breaths. And the longer and slower, the better. That activates the parasympathetic relaxation mode in the nervous system. We know that relaxing certain muscles triggers the activation of the vagus nerve, which again calms you down. So we have people do several of these evidence-based, body-based practices that end up still, still their minds, they don't have to believe in any guru or religion or spiritual path. They just do these evidence-based practices. And if they do them in sequence and do them effectively, then again, they drop into those, those deep states. Yeah, I mean, I'm a hypnotherapist, so I'm, I'm I'm at one with everything you're saying here because we use it as, a, as an application model to to do therapy with people who are under hypnosis, and I think the hypnotic and the the meditative state are pretty similar, really. When it when it comes down to it, mm. yeah, a lot of theta and delta in the brain, yeah. uh, alpha and beta quite way down in trance, in hypnosis, yeah. and of course in sleep. In sleep, we're in delta most of the time. So exactly. yeah. And, and yeah. it's often been said, and and I've found, and actually the more the more I've thought about this and investigated this, is that, that it's the opposite of mindfulness. So actually what you're trying to do is people who are often very mindful find meditation pretty difficult. So I just wonder about your thoughts on that. People do find meditation difficult, but um, there again are body-based ways of meditation that are much easier than stilling the mind. And the numbers are remarkable. So in the last chapter of Bliss Brain, I look at what's happening in the world on the macro scale. And one of those really interesting trends is meditation. So if you look back, there's a chapter in the book called The 1%. And when we look back in history, we find that in 1980, roughly 1% of people in industrialized nations were meditating. If we go back a long way, like go back to the Domesday book of William the Conqueror in England, and again, we find that about 1% of the population was engaged in some kind of spiritual pursuit. Yeah. Go back to the same period in France and Germany, which kept pretty good records back then, 1%. Go back to China and India, which also had records a thousand years ago, 1%. So it's been 1% throughout history. And so that, that chapter is called 1%. Mm -hmm. And then it quadrupled. It had quadrupled between 1980 and 2010 to uh, 4%. 4% of the population was meditating then. Now it's a, it's it's trending toward 20%. We're right around the 20% mark of people meditating. So there's been a 20-fold increase in people using these practices. They are They do require focus. They require time. 
But again, you start to feel so good. And uh, the goal of our meditative style is to unlock the production of several hormones and neurotransmitters like oxytocin, like serotonin and dopamine, like anandamide, the bliss molecule. And the bliss molecule, anandamide, oh. is, is the most pleasurable molecule that we've discovered so far in science in terms of the neurotransmitters. And it docks with the same receptor sites in the brain as THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. Yeah. So you're getting all this THC-like anandamide in your brain. You're getting all this psilocybin-like serotonin in your brain. You're getting all this oxytocin in your brain beta endorphins, and all of these pleasure molecules. So meditate well, effectively, and it's a highly pleasurable experience, which will literally get you addicted to it and keep you coming back. Right, brilliant. Um, I want to be conscious of your time, but I've heard a rumor that you've written a book called Bliss Brain. Is that right? Is, is, is that some, I don't know. I don't know where I've heard that rumor. Um, <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about that and where we can find it and get, get, get our paws on it? Yeah, by all means, uh, check out this brain, and you can get the book for free at thisbrain.com. You have to pay shipping and handling, but the book itself is free, thanks to a very generous um, deal from the publisher, Hay House. And so blissbrain.com is where you get the book. And it's really worth reading the experiences of these, these people in that the United States and then trying it yourself and then seeing what it does for you. So um, just, just realizing that, that we have this potential to be dramatically happier than the average person is content with. And it just isn't that hard to get there, Russell. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm preaching the converted, really, but I've got to ask the questions that other people might be thinking. Um, and obviously, I've seen it on Amazon. It's just like people can buy it there as well. Yes. Yes. Good. And if they'd like to find out more about you and your work, Dawson, and the um, and other courses and other things that you get up to, where, where can they look for that? The best place is to go to DawsonGift.com because there I have a stress reduction technique called EFT. I have the mini manual for EFT. Also, I have a, a meditation there, a meditation track. And we did a study a few years ago looking at levels of Cortisol, also physiological markers of, of people using that, that track, things like heart rate, blood pressure. And we found that many of those physiological markers improved. Their cortisol went down dramatically in a weekend of doing the meditation. Their, their, their resting heart rate dropped, their blood pressure went down. But what was a real surprise to us is that their immunity rose significantly, rose over 25%, their immune markers. So that meditation track at DawsonGift.com is based on that immunity trial and really focuses on imagining and includes some self-hypnosis around boosting your immunity, which as we are, you know, in, in a coronavirus is still out there in the world and will be for mm -hmm. a long time. So uh, this boosts molecules called immunoglobulins, which attach to the spike proteins of coronaviruses and neutralize them. So that meditation is a really useful one for immunity. And again, there are two clinical trials showing rises in immunoglobulins when you do this kind of work. All of that's at DawsonGift.com. Brilliant. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. It's been a joy to meet. And I'm, I know this has not been our first attempt to um, to engage. So thank you for um, persevering. <laughs> it's been absolutely brilliant. And um, perhaps I can invite you back another time to actually begin to un unpack some of these concepts in a bit more depth. I think that'd be quite useful. It would be. be fun. Thank you. I appreciate you having me back again. Brilliant. All right. Well, Wilson, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. And um, I wish you well, all, well in all you're doing. And just to confirm, blissbrain.com um eftuniverse.com get your free great gifts or um 
what was that other site you said? DawsonGift.com. DawsonGift.com. So there's no excuse for not getting hold of Dawson's work and having a look and see what's going on out there. Because um, and, and it doesn't matter whether you're sceptical or whether you're not, but it's always great to to read alternative views because that's good for the brain anyway, isn't it? And, um, you know, uh, the... The, the case has been won scientifically for meditation. It's just a question of, you know, working out how you want to join in for some people, isn't it? Absolutely. Just having a practice. And that, that's the commitment you have to make is just say, I'm just going to do this. And, and it makes a big difference in your life to just make that commitment and then be consistent for a while. And then like I've had people start doing the meditation and then they make a commitment to doing it for say 30 days. One psychotherapist in one of my workshops, I said, you know, I know you made that commitment to the 30 days of meditation and it really worked for you. And what day are you on now? She said, I'm on day 127. Because <laughs> again, that, those those neurochemicals yeah. feel good. You want to keep on doing more of them. So yeah, make but, a regular practice of it. And I think I think the point you're making as well is about that. You don't have to be sitting and chanting on top of a mountain set. I mean, I do a form of walking, no. walking yeah. meditation uh, because I can't sit still for more than three and a quarter seconds. So you know, I I will do that, and I and I think people need to understand that it's it's there's not a stereotypical Buddhist way of doing this. It's not necessarily spiritual or religious. It's actually a good um, practical way of practicing a skill that allows you to have some you know pretty significant benefits. So, right. and works we're, for your lifestyle. So you have to we're, learn. Your- we're on we're on the second podcast now. So we better stop now before I keep going. <laughs> Dawson, good to talk. Thank you so much. Take care. All the best. Thanks again. Hi everybody, I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.